by way of review, uh, last weekend we looked at the virtue of brotherly love, and during the message there was a, a particular passage from the book of First Peter that uh, we we looked at, and my wife looked over at me and said during the live stream, she said, "That is so relevant. That passage is just." so relevant to some of the things that are going on in our world today. And she was right on the money. Um, usually I am the right one in our relationship, but in this instance, it was her. And uh, the, the passage is from Peter, where, where Peter commands those of us who are following Jesus. He says, finally, you should be of one mind. Well, how do we do that, Peter? He tells us. He says, sympathize with each other. In other words, if one of you is hurting, the other person should do everything they can to feel that pain with them. Love each other as brothers and sisters. In other words, try and interact with each other the way that a healthy family would. Be tender-hearted. Have some measure of compassion for this other individual. And keep a humble attitude. As you interact with one another, be open to the idea that this other person could have a perspective on life that you don't have. In the midst of everything that's taken place since George Floyd's death, in the midst of everything that's going on now with the passing of Rashard Brooks, in the midst of all of the pain and the frustration and the anger that's being expressed in our culture right now, what Peter is saying to us right here, it is so relevant. If ever there was a time for us to live into this as the church, this is that time. So with that in mind, I want to pray for us as a church, for us as a nation, and then, and then we'll jump into things for this week. So would you pray with me, please? Father, just again, as there is so much happening in our culture today, please help us as the church just to live obediently into this command that you have given us to be sympathetic with each other, to love one another, to be tender-hearted towards one another, to be humble. Let the church be the kind of community where that is lived out well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this week we are in the, the final week of our series, Equipped. And uh, in the series, we've simply been recognizing that life is full of challenges and that we want to meet these challenges well. And we've been wrestling with this idea of how do we do that? Because in the series we've been saying, hey, God wants to equip you and me to meet the challenges we face in life and to do so well. But again, the question becomes, how? And, and so in answer to that question, we have been looking at a passage from the book of 2 uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7, 
where Peter tells us how God is equipping us. Peter says to us, he says, make every effort to add to your faith. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to your knowledge self-control and to your self-control perseverance and to your perseverance godliness and to your godliness mutual affection and to your mutual affection love. Peter tells us to make every effort to add these virtues to our faith because Peter understands that the cultivation of these virtues in our life is the means by which God is equipping us to meet the challenges we face and to do so well. So every week we're taking one of these virtues, we're defining it, we're illustrating it, and then we're talking about how to cultivate it. And as we wrap things up this weekend, we're going to take some time to look at the final virtue, the virtue of love. The virtue of love. Now, as we have this conversation, uh, it's going to be important for us to, to understand something. And, and you may have picked up on this already throughout the series, but, but there's overlap between the different virtues. Like how, how one virtue plays itself out in my life might be the same. It might even impact how another virtue plays itself out in my life. And how I define one virtue, I, I may discover that another virtue has similar characteristics to, to, to a virtue I've already defined. And how I go about cultivating one virtue can be the same for how I cultivate another virtue. You, you, along the, the way in this series, you may have noticed some of that. If this is going to become apparent at any point in time, it should be apparent today. Because last weekend, we talked about the virtue of Philadelphian. Mutual affection, brotherly love. And this weekend, we're going to talk about the virtue of agape, love. Probably best understood in God's love. And so when you talk about brotherly love and God's love, there's just bound to be some overlap. Now, when Peter tells us, make every effort to add to our faith love, what is it that Peter's talking about? Because love is one of these words. We love to throw it around in church all the time, but rarely do we clearly define it. And love is a word that even has meaning, you know, like a range of meaning in our own culture today. It's why I can say, I love enchiladas and I love my wife. And hopefully I mean a different thing, you know, when I say each of those statements. And I do, because love has a range of meaning. So when, when, when we're talking about adding to our faith love, what is it that Peter has in mind? Well, again, th this love, this, this thing agape, it's, it's meant to capture God's love. Uh, it's meant to help us realize that God loves us no matter what. That there's nothing we can do to make him love us more. There's nothing we can do to make him love us less. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us completely just the way we are. When, when Peter tells us to make every effort to add to our faith love, agape love is, is meant to express, it's meant to, to capture God's unconditional and complete love for you and me. And yet, that, that being true, that still really fails to, to put some really clear handles on what it looks like for you and me to add this kind of love to our faith, to express this kind of love to each other. And so today, 
I want to take some time and try and make it as clear and applicable and, and just tangible as we can. And so in an effort to do that, we're going to spend some time in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, with the Apostle Paul. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, it's the classic love chapter, but the thing that I really appreciate about it is in it, Paul gets so clear, so practical, so tangible, so applicable as to what love is really all about. So let's, let's jump into 1 Corinthians 13 with the Apostle Paul, where as he begins, he helps us to understand that love is the foremost of all the virtues. Paul expresses that idea this way when he writes, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I, if I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't have love for others, I would have gained nothing. In other words, Paul is saying, I can be a diligent student of the Bible. I can be a theological powerhouse. I can explain concepts in such a way that just makes us stand in awe. But if I don't love, I'm nothing more than a talking head. And all my learning is for nothing. Paul is saying, I can have big faith, mountain-moving, Red Sea-splitting kind of confidence in God. But if I haven't loved, so what? Paul's saying, I can write checks till it hurts. I can put myself in harm's way for other people. I can make sure everybody knows about it. But if I don't love there's no reward in any of that. See, for Paul, love wasn't a nice option. It was the essential ingredient. It is the foremost of all of the virtues we've discussed. And then after making that clear, Paul gets super practical, super applicable about what love looks like. He starts off this way. He says, love is patient and kind. In other words, love isn't looking for the opportunity to pay someone back. When, when somebody legitimately blows it, as it responds, love isn't punitive in its response. It may hold somebody accountable, but deep down inside, we know the difference between accountability for somebody's benefits and being punitive, it, taking our opportunity to get our pound of, pound of flesh and, and thump them from what they've done. Love doesn't do that. It's patient and kind. Or, or, or love, is, love, love is patient and kind. Love suffers long. Doesn't that sound fun? But this is what love does. Love, th th there's, this, there's this saying in our world, Burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, well, shame on me. 
Because I should have had enough sense not to get close enough to you to burn me a second time after you burned me the first time. But that's not love. love. Love looks for an opportunity to keep a person around even though they're broken and flawed rather than push them away. Because love is patient. And love is kind. Or Paul will say, love is not jealous. In other words, love isn't full of envy. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, the word that we have, have translated here is jealous. Paul, excuse me, Luke uses that exact same word to describe Joseph and his brothers and how they felt about Joseph and, and, and how that motivated them to sell Joseph into slavery. Dad, Dad loved Joseph in ways he didn't love them. Dad gave Joseph stuff he didn't give them. Heck, even God sent visions Joseph's way, and they got nothing. And so his brothers were jealous. They were envious of Joseph. Love, love doesn't, doesn't do that. See, when, when someone has something that I want and I don't have, and that eats me up on the inside, when someone is, is getting consideration that I wish I was receiving, but I'm not getting, and I'm bent about that, that that's not love. That's not the way that love works. When I go jealous, when envy takes over, because you have what I want and I don't have, what's going on inside of me, that's not love. Love sees what you're receiving, even if I'm not receiving it and wish that I was. Love sees that and love celebrates what you're receiving. You see, love sees what you have and it celebrates your win. Jealousy only sees what I don't have and it simply mourns my loss. Love isn't jealous. Or Paul tells us, love, love isn't boastful. It's not a windbag forever saying, saying, listen to me, see how good I am. Love isn't proud. It isn't forever screaming out, look at me so you can see how good I am. And love isn't rude. The word we have translated for rude here, it's, it's used in the book of Revelation to describe someone who's found naked. See, love, love isn't forever trying to get noticed. It, it isn't desperate to be seen. It isn't trying to prove how worthwhile it is. And love doesn't have to resort to shock value to get you to turn its way. My friend Bob Hoy loves really well like this. Bob is currently on staff at Covenant Community Care. And Bob served as a covenant pastor for a number of Detroit area covenant churches. And if you, I'm telling you, if you put Bob into a group of people, Bob will regularly call for that group of people's attention. But it's almost never to call attention on himself. It's almost always to put the spotlight on somebody else. See, Bob has this gift. He can see the gifting of other people. He can see what they're good at, the way that they contribute, and he sees it in ways that oftentimes get missed by most others. 
And so you put Bob into a group of people, he will regularly demand that group's attention. But it's never about, hey, listen to me, look at me, pay attention to me. It's almost always about, look at her. Pay attention to him. Listen to what they have to say. Because love, love isn't boastful. It's not proud. It's not rude. Or Paul will go on and he'll say, love doesn't demand its own way. This one is huge. If you were to translate it literally, you'd be saying, love doesn't seek its own good. Love seeks the good of others. This facet of love gets illustrated for us so well in the story of two men. One of them is the man from Golgotha, and one of them is the man from Auschwitz. In, in his book, The Body, Chuck Colson chronicles the story of the man from Auschwitz this way. By the end of 1941, Auschwitz was working like a well-organized killing machine. And the Nazis had to congratulate themselves on their efficiency. At first, they had to admit there was some doubt if they could find a way to dispose of all the corpses or to dispatch the undesirables in quantities that weren't too small. But Auschwitz, Auschwitz was working well. The camp's chimneys never stopped smoking. The stench was terrible, but the results were excellent. 8,000 Jews could be stripped of their possessions, appropriated for the Reich, gassed and cremated, all in 24 hours, every 24 hours. There was only one problem. The occasional prisoner from the work side of the camp who found a way to escape. When these escapees were caught, and they usually were, they'd be hung with a special noose that slowly choked out their lives. It was a warning to those who might try and escape themselves. One July night in 1941, the air was filled with the, the, the barking of dogs, the roar of motorcycles, the curse of soldiers, a man had escaped from Barracks 14. The next morning, there's a particular tension in the ranks as the prisoners lined up for roll call. No condemned man stood before them, ready to be hung on the gallows. That meant death for some of those who remained. After roll call, Camp Commandant Fitch ordered the dismissal of all but Barracks 14. They stood there in the sun all day long waiting for their sentence to be given. At the end of the day, the rest of the camp arrived and Fitch was ready to give his sentence. Shouting with the, necks, the, the veins in his neck standing out, Fitch screamed, The fugitive has not been found. Ten of you will die in his place in the starvation bunker. Next time, it'll be twenty. The condemned swayed at these words. The starvation bunker? Anything was better than that. 
Death in the gallows, a bullet in the head, even the gas chamber. All of those were quick, even humane compared to the starvation bunker where they denied you water as well as food. The prisoners who lived in barracks 11 right above the starvation bunker, they shared stories about it. They talked about how the condemned didn't even look like human beings after a day or two. They frightened even the guards. Their throats turned to paper, their brains turned to fire, their intestines dried up like desiccated worms. Fitz walked the row of prisoners, choosing his victims like you would a horse. Open your mouth, put out your tongue, let me see your teeth. All the while, his assistant would follow along, writing out the chosen prisoners' numbers on the death roll. One of the guards wrote down the last man's name, who cried out in desperation, my wife, my children, what are they going to do without me? Take off your shoes, Fitch barked. It was tradition that the condemned would march to their death barefooted. Suddenly, there was a commotion in the ranks. One of the prisoners had broken out of line and was calling for the commandant's attention. This was unheard of. To, to, to break out of the ranks, let alone to address a Nazi officer, was cause for immediate execution. Halt! Fitch screamed, breaking precedent. What does this Polish pig want of me? All of the prisoners gasped. It was their beloved Father Kolb, the priest who had shared his last crust of bread, who had comforted the dying, who had heard their confessions, who had prayed with them, who had nourished their souls. Anyone but not Father Kolb. The frail priest spoke softly, even calmly, to the Nazi butcher. I'd like to die in the place of one of the men you've condemned. Fitch stared at this prisoner 16670. He never considered them individuals. They were just a gray blur. But he looked now at 16670. He didn't appear insane. Why, Fitch snapped. Father Kolb sensed a need for exact diplomacy. The Nazis never reversed an order, so he must not seem to be asking them to do so. Kolb knew the Nazi dictum of destruction well, the weak and the elderly first. He would play on that well-ingrained principle. I'm an old man, sir. My life is good for nothing. It'll serve no purpose. This ploy triggered the response Kolb wanted. And whose place do you want to die, Fitch asked. For that one, Kolb said, pointing at the man who bemoaned his wife and children. Fitz glanced at the weeping prisoner. He didn't look much stronger than his tattered 16670. For the first and the last time, the commandant looked Kolb in the eye. Who are you, he asked. The prisoner looked back at him, a strange fire in his dark eyes. I am a Catholic priest, he said. Ah, a priest, the commandant snorted. 
but he nodded at the assistant who drew a line through 5659 and wrote down 16670. Cole bent down and took off his shoes and joined the other men to be marched to the bunker. As he did, he passed 5659. From a distance, the soldiers wouldn't let them come near one another. And on the man's face was an expression so astonished that it did not yet become gratitude. As the condemned men entered the bunker, the guards pushed them roughly down the stairs and ordered them to take off their clothes. Christ died on the cross naked, Cope thought. So he took off his pants and his shirt. It's only fitting, he thought to himself, that I suffer as he suffered to gain the glory he gained. You're going to dry up like turnips, the guards sneered at them, and they swung the heavy door shut. As the days passed, however, the camp became aware of something extraordinary happening in the death cell. Past prisoners had spent their dying days howling, attacking one another, clawing at the walls in a frenzied despair. But now, coming from the death box, those outside heard the sounds of singing. This time the prisoners had a shepherd to gently lead them through the valley of the shadow of death. Someone to point them to the great shepherd. And perhaps for that reason, Father Kolb was the last to die. A prisoner who survived Auschwitz, who served as an attendant to the death cells, remembers how it happened. His job was to remove the corpses and to empty the waste bucket each day but it was always dry. The prisoners had drunk its contents in an effort to slack their thirst. On August 14th of 1941, there were four prisoners still alive in the bunker, but it was needed for new occupants. A German doctor entered with four syringes. Father Maximum Kolb a living skeleton sat propped up against a wall. He had a ghost of a smile on his lips and his eyes were fixed on some faraway vision. The other three prisoners on the floor were unconscious but alive. The doctor took care of them first and then he approached number 16670. A needle in a bony arm a push of a piston and a syringe. And in a moment, Father Kolb was gone. See, Father Kolb is the man from Auschwitz. And for those of us who has eyes to see, he points us to the man from Golgotha. A man who said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. 
And that's what Jesus did on the cross. As he pointed at you and me. And he said, I want to take that one's place. And so to those of us who follow him, he calls us in some ways small and some ways great to love like he loved. Because that's what love does. It doesn't just look out for its own good. It looks out for the good of others. Now, if all of that wasn't enough already, Paul goes on. He says, love isn't irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Love doesn't get its feathers ruffled easily. You, you, you really have to do something significant to get at love. And when, when a legitimate wrong has been done, love doesn't go over that wrong again and again and again in its mind. Love doesn't sit and stew in it. See, love understands. Love understands. Wrongs were meant to be written in dust and benefits were meant to be chiseled in marble. Not the other way around. Love isn't irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. And finally, Paul says, love doesn't rejoice in injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. The, the word Paul uses here about rejoicing, it's the same word that the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, that, that Luke uses in his gospel, in chapter 15, where, where Luke writes these three stories about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son that are found. And the rejoicing that takes place when they're found. And Luke, Luke shares these stories so that we'll understand the kind of rejoicing that happens in heaven when someone who is wrong realizes that and repents and finds forgiveness. See, love, love isn't all excited about, about, about getting somebody back. Love isn't, is, doesn't rejoice in seeing somebody get theirs. No, Love rejoices when somebody realizes they're wrong and that person finds forgiveness. Love isn't about doling out justice. Love's about extending mercy. Paul says this is what love looks like. Measurable, practical, tangible, applicable things. This is what love is all about. So, one last time. How do we cultivate this virtue? And this, my friends, is where the overlap becomes the most apparent. Because, you see, last week we talked about, you know, if, if we're going to cultivate 
mutual affection, if we're going to cultivate brotherly love, that happens when we pray and when we preach and when we, we pretend. And, and I would argue, if you're going to cultivate agape, if you're going to cultivate this, this, this God-like kind of love, it happens the exact same way. It's the same way we cultivate brotherly love is the way that we cultivate this godly kind of love. That, that, that when I have an opportunity to love this way, I need to pray. Because I, I can't love like God loves in my power alone. I just can't do it. So when an opportunity comes, I'm going to cry out to God to change something inside of me to help me love like he loves. And when I have an opportunity to love, I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach to myself. I'm going to remind myself that even when I did not deserve it, God loved me this way. And if God loved me this way when I didn't have it coming, who in the world am I to withhold that from somebody else? When I have an opportunity to love, I'm going to pretend. I'm going to choose to live in a way that reflects love as Paul's described it to me. Trust in whether I feel like it or not, that if I live into that consistently, my feelings will come along sooner or later. I'm going to pray, I'm going to preach, and I'm going to pretend. That's how I'm going to learn to love. So Peter tells us, as we face these challenges in life, that God himself wants to equip you and me with everything we need to meet those challenges and to meet them well. And the means by which God is equipping us is the cultivation of these virtues in our life. So church, may you make every effort, may you do everything you can to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to your knowledge self-control and to your self-control perseverance and to your perseverance godliness and to your godliness mutual affection and to your mutual affection love because to the degree that we learn to grow in these virtues we're going to successfully meet the challenges we face and meet them well would you pray with me please Father, just as we finish today thinking about what Peter is talking about here, God, we, we just, we want to pray. We're going to start cultivating your love in our lives right here, right now, and we just cry out to you, God, do a work in our hearts that only you can do. God, the way that you have loved us through the power of your Holy Spirit unleashed in our lives, God, help us to love that way as well. And for Father, Father some of us today, as we're, as we're hearing this, as we're watching this, it's dawning on us 
that we can't love the way you've loved because we haven't received your love yet. We can't give what we ourselves don't have. But for some of us here today, we're ready to receive that love. We are ready to receive what the man from Golgotha came to make, make possible for us. And so we, do, we cry out, we are broken, we have sinned. We cannot do this ourselves. We can't do life, let alone love, in our power alone. And so today we confess our brokenness to you. We say yes to Jesus. We say yes to the love that he showed as he laid down his life for us. We surrender all of who we are to him. Today, we begin this journey where we follow him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 